0: So over the course of this retreat we've been working our way through the instructions given in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And last night I gave you an overview of the Five Hindrances, those unhelpful states of mind that get in the way of clear seeing, of insight. And in some ways I was jumping ahead a bit because that list actually appears in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which I'll be talking more about later. But it felt important to uh, give you that overview sooner rather than later because dealing with the five hindrances is often a very predominant experience in the first few days of a retreat. So these are a big part of our practice and I'd like to return to exploring them a little bit more tonight, specifically in terms of ways of helping them to release. Because when we're able to release the hindrances, there is more room, more space in the heart and mind for the seven factors of awakening to develop and grow. But before we go there, I'd like to give us just a little bit more context about these four foundations of mindfulness. So the basic instructions in relation to the first three foundations, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, and mindfulness of the mind, is to simply know our experience exactly as it is, with this quality of bare awareness, without reacting to it in any way so in the first foundation mindfulness of the body we're just with the physical sensations and this afternoon when we are practicing with the second foundation of mindfulness mindfulness of feeling tone you are practicing together in pairs simply naming whether sense experiences were pleasant unpleasant or neutral And with the third foundation of mindfulness, which we'll be exploring more tomorrow, mindfulness of the mind, the basic instructions are the same. To know the presence or the absence of different mind states, such as lust or anger or delusion. Or to simply know whether the mind is contracted or distracted or concentrated or unconcentrated. So you can see that with each of these three, first three foundations of mindfulness, we just know what our experience is, that's all. However, when we come to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where these lists of the hindrances and the awakening factors appear, there's a shift in emphasis, a shift in relationship. In these, in the fourth foundation, it's no longer enough just to know our experience, we're instructed to get actively involved with it so for example in relation to the hindrances we want to find if the hindrances are present we want to find ways of releasing them and if uh, the awakening factors are absent we want to find ways of helping them to come into being and for ways to then strengthen them so I want to emphasize this more active engagement with experience in the fourth foundation because, as I was saying earlier, when mindfulness, has it's become more mainstream, the default instruction is often just be with your experience, just be with it, just be with it. And it's true that that's the initial instruction, but as the practice develops, we're cultivating the discernment to know how to relate more skillfully to that experience and where necessary, to try and change it. So to come back to the hindrances and explore how this uh, works in relation to the hindrances, just remembering perhaps the instructions that I read from the sutta last night. I gave you the basic instructions in terms of sense desire, but these instructions are repeated for each of the five hindrances. So I'll read you now as a reminder the same instructions in relation to the second hindrance of ill will or aversion. So it says, here, meditators. When ill will is present in one, a meditator knows there is ill will present in me. Or when ill will is not present in one, one knows there is no ill will present in me. One also knows how the ill will, which has not yet arisen, comes to arise. One knows how the ill will that has arisen comes to be discarded. And one knows how the discarded ill will will not arise in the future. So there's a lot in that one paragraph. And I'll go through it in a little bit more detail. But the initial instruction is to know, is the hindrance present or not? And then we're asked to know, how do they come up? What causes them? What are the conditions which lead to the hindrance arising? And then once it has arisen, how do we help to release it and to prevent it from coming back in the future? So as you can get a sense of, this is really a lifetime of practice. So perhaps to make it that a little bit more, um, to give an example of how that might work, a pretty simple example from my own practice. On one of my first three-month retreats at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, I had the habit every day after lunch of going out for a walk. And I would come back to the hall, and for several days in a row, I noticed that every afternoon when I sat in the hall, I would get caught in these quite aversive, negative mind states. And this seemed to become a pattern each day, every afternoon, same experience, irritation, frustration, not sure why. And because this happened so many times in a row, I decided I need to, to practice what I called post-mortem mindfulness. I referred to that the other day of looking back and trying to see, well, what was going on there? And when I thought about what had been happening just before that first afternoon sitting, I realized that I was walking back to the hall through the car park. And as I was doing that, I was looking at all the cars, which were mostly American cars, And I was reading all the license plates of the cars and all the different states they were from and the American slogans that happened for each state. For example, New Hampshire, live free or die. And so I would read these slogans and I'd come into the hall and there'd be a version. But not just aversion. When I started to explore, I realized there was something else going on too. So I paid attention to the body, to the heart and the mind, and I started to unpack different levels of, uh, unpleasant emotions, and realized that there was aversion, but underneath it, there was a sense of, I don't belong here. This is not my country. These are not my people. And oh, This is loneliness. Ah. And once I realized what the underlying emotion was, I could do something about it. But until I'd gone through that investigation of, okay, what was I doing physically? What was happening in my emotions? Sat with the emotions. used the mental noting practice to actually get clear about what was going on. Then I could help those mind states release. And then I could make the choice to take a different path. Going back to the hall, so I didn't walk past the cars every day, and magically, I didn't experience those negative mind states. So this is um, just a simple example of how we might approach uh, a hindrance, if we, particularly one that's recurrent like that. So the first step is to know whether the hindrances are present or not. And obviously this takes mindfulness. And sometimes just being able to name it, oh, irritation or sense desire or sleepiness, just naming it, that amount of clarity can help it release. But other times, if the if, if it feels very established or strong or if it's a multiple hindrance attack, we might need to bring up a little more of the investigation quality and really start to pay attention to it. So this mental noting technique that I offered earlier can be really helpful as a kind of training in emotional literacy. So sometimes, like in the example I gave, I was aware that there was some emotional discomfort. And so it sometimes it can feel like we're throwing darts at a dartboard. We're trying out these different names to see if we can identify what's the emotion. And sometimes the darts kind of go clunk. But then if we keep trying, we might get closer to the bullseye and go, oh, this is loneliness. Ah, loneliness feels like this. So we use the mental noting to help us um, notice the different flavors of the emotion. So coming back to the text about these, one knows how the ill will which has not yet arisen comes to arise. One knows how the ill will that has arisen comes to be discarded. And one knows how the discarded ill will will not arise in the future. So remembering that the hindrances are, as RoboBea calls them, manifestations of our humanity, it's natural that they're going to arise. And learning strategies to help them be discarded is a very important skill of our meditation practice. So tonight I wanted to offer a few techniques uh, for working with difficult emotions generally, not even just the hindrances, but more globally how to work with challenging mind states. So the first thing to keep in mind when we're working with difficult emotions of any kind is that we're really trying to stay balanced in relation to them. Throughout his teachings, the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on what he called the middle way. So in relation to difficult emotions, we can think of that balance as being the balance between, on the one hand, not avoiding or ignoring or denying or suppressing what's happening and on the other hand not feeding or indulging identifying with or getting overwhelmed by the emotion on the other side so in order to stay in that balance we need to really listen to ourselves to pay attention to the context that we're in and also in daily life to be aware of what else is going on in our lives so if for example we have a huge deadline at work or we're not feeling so well physically, or we have a whole bunch of relatives coming to visit for the weekend, that might not be the best time to be starting to investigate these more entrenched, difficult emotions. But if the timing does feel right, we might want to take a session of meditation to investigate more directly what's going on, what's driving these difficult thoughts and emotions. An investigation here doesn't mean intellectual analysis or it's not necessarily about delving into all the details of my childhood history and thinking about everything we need to talk about in a psychotherapy session. Investigation in this context is more about really listening for a more intuitive wisdom, one that's more body-based, so as best we can, trying to stay out of the head and really feel into the body and the heart center. And it can t- keep, tr- it can take some training to keep bringing the awareness back to the body, though, because our usual uh, response when we come into contact with a difficult emotion is usually to contract, to tighten up, to resist it in some way which usually makes the whole experience more uncomfortable. But with training, we can start to notice when that resistance is happening. And we all have our own symptoms of this. So part of this body literacy is also to notice, oh, what, what are my particular symptoms of a, an emotion? So for example, when I was uh, teaching in a men's prison in Massachusetts, Sometimes I would get the guys to do an exercise just exploring anger and how anger manifested in their bodies. So I'd invite them in a meditation session to just stand and bring to mind a time when they experienced some kind of hopefully relatively minor anger and to begin to explore that in the body. And it was very interesting for each man to start to recognize how they, what were the early warning signals of anger for them. So one man said he couldn't believe it. As soon as I, just when I said the word anger, instantly his right fist formed and his right arm became tense just on hearing the word anger. Nothing more than that. So that's a relatively uh, strong example, but all of us have our own early warning signals of these different emotions in the body and learning to pay attention to them and recognize them can be very helpful because the longer these emotions go on undetected, the more entrenched they become and the more difficult to free them. So being on the lookout for this sense of contraction can be very helpful. And there's a mantra that I know I've shared with many of you before that I've found useful in my own practice that comes from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. And she talks about the mantra of ABC, which stands for A Bigger Container. So because we have this tendency to contract and tighten around difficult emotions, the invitation with ABC is to try and remember Can I make a bigger container? (coughs) Excuse me. So we can do this literally, physically, as well as imaginatively. So if, for example, I'm sitting here and a sudden wave of, okay, let's just say grief comes up and it's like, oh, not this again. And I feel that sort of clenching or tightening or resisting. Right there, if I remember A, B, C, okay, this is grief, can I make a bigger container? Can I literally sit up straighter and open the chest, soften the shoulders, take a deeper breath, feel a sense of space in the body to counteract that tendency to contract? So I sit with that I make a bigger container. I may even open my eyes if it feels like there's a wave of intensity. Okay, I open my eyes and I see the space in the room. So I make the container even bigger and I get that sense of the space in the room. Perhaps I need to make the container even bigger than that and I might actually just open my eyes and look out of the window for a moment and see the sky. Yes, There is the space of the sky in all of this. So these are all ways of imaginatively and literally opening up space in the body to counteract that tendency to contract. So the analogy with that is if we have an intense emotion, it can be like a wild horse. And if you put a wild horse in a small corral, it goes crazy. But if you let that wild horse out into a bigger field, it's the same energy, but because it's in a bigger space, it doesn't have quite the same impact, the same intensity. So that's one strategy that we can try. Another one to keep in mind is one that I call touch and go. And this comes from a a, a UK teacher I think it was Maura Sills that I first heard it from. But again, the idea is that we're trying to always stay in balance. And sometimes people don't want to go into their emotions because they think, oh, I'm supposed to go there and drill down into my deepest, darkest trauma and kind of blast through it in the course of a one day workshop or something. Not helpful. With this approach of touch and go, what we're doing is, particularly with a strong, intense emotion, is that we know it, we recognize it. Oh, this is grief, or this is anger, or this is loneliness. We touch into it. Okay, you might literally touch into it with your hand. Okay, this is grief. It's intense. I stay with it. And then when I come to that edge where I feel like I'm starting to perhaps get lost in it, okay, time to go. And that going can be either meta- um, literally taking your attention somewhere else in your experience, preferably somewhere, some aspect of your experience that is either pleasant, or if you can't find pleasant, neutral. So just as we were doing this afternoon in the exercise with the noticing pleasant and unpleasant feeling tone, if we're getting lost in unpleasant emotions, it can be helpful to deliberately open up to include more of the full spectrum of our experience. So even if there's intense grief, for example, can we find something that's not the grief? Oh, Pleasant flowers on the shrine. Oh, softness of the clothing against my skin. Another wave of anger. Oh, feeling the support of the cushion beneath my sitting bones. So in that way, you're kind of perforating the cloud of whatever the storm of the emotion is. And in a similar way, even naming it, the technique of mental noting is helpful because apparently neurobiologically, The part of the brain that makes the note or the label is different from the part that's experiencing the emotion. So just for the nanosecond that we're naming grief or anger or despair or loneliness, in that moment, we're not in the emotion. And so again, we start to perforate that cloud and help it to break up. So with touch and go, we touch into, we name the emotion and then we go to something else in our experience that's pleasant or neutral. At times, we may need to actually literally go. So at the end of the sitting, we might recognize, I need to just go and have a cup of tea or I need to go and walk in my favorite walking spot. I need to just take some space from this difficult emotion so that I can come back to balance. So this is, uh, you know, in the medical terminology we talk they talk about titrating the dose of a medication and that titration is finding exactly the right balance of the medication so that it's effective if it's too much it'll it negatively impact the body and if it's not enough it won't have any effect so in the same way with the emotions we're trying to find what's the amount that i can actually manage safely that I can actually deal with. And sometimes that might be a homeopathic dose. So it might be just, okay, grief, got it, thank you. Now I need to have a cup of tea. This is not... So I appreciate that you're laughing because usually when people hear this, they think it's cheating. But I'm talking about pretty strong emotions here. And it's in the service of staying balanced. We're trying to find the middle way. So taking a strategic withdrawal, if you're doing it mindfully, is very helpful. If we're just going, oh, this is too much, get me out of here. That's very different than, okay, I feel it. This is the edge for me for today. Now I need to do something to come back into balance. So we're using wisdom to gently expand our comfort zones, not blast through them, but not retreat So again, we're trying to find that middle way in relation to them. So another way of um, making sure we maintain balance is to literally set time limits in our exposure to them. So if something is particularly challenging, painful, long-standing, perhaps we kind of make a deal with ourselves. Okay, let me be with this shame for 30 seconds. And you might literally if you're at home set a timer or here let me feel it for 30 seconds or 10 seconds try it and then okay thank you go and do something different so these are all ways of um, trying to balance out the, the challenging emotions and to come back to more skillful states of mind I a on that. sure Yeah, because you're, in that medical model, uh, you're kind of strengthening your emotional immune system by exposing it to doses that you can actually manage but that actually strengthen it. And over time, most people find that they're able to tolerate a, a bigger and bigger capacity to deal with the emotion and it becomes less intense. Does that make sense? Yes. Like it you. Yes. And this capacity to go to something in your experience that's either neutral or pleasant also is helping rewire the brain so that you don't, at each time you touch fear for example, you don't spiral into, oh this is going to be terrible, how am I going to deal with it, this is going to go on forever. It's like, okay, there's fear. And I know how it feels to see the beautiful flower on the shrine or I know how it feels to be sitting on a supportive cushion in a safe environment. So we're um, uncoupling the tendency to go down that same cow path in the mind, that same groove in the mind. We're creating new neural pathways. Yes, a good point. So we can work. tempering of reaction to stop hurt. Yes. To serve others. in maybe too. Yes, so overexcitement or lust, for example. So if we're thinking in terms of the hindrances, yes, definitely we can use these same techniques to moderate getting lost in either way so always we're looking for this middle way thank you yeah, just, just thing, you yeah. well it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation because <laughs> how we need it results in equanimity but where all of this is a training too so You could say all the training we were doing with feeling tone, noticing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that's helping strengthen equanimity because we're reducing the reactivity and we're staying with bare awareness. Same with the body. So all of these foundations of mindfulness, they're trainings in being present with your experience with non-reactivity, which is is an aspect of equanimity. And then when we come to the emotions, it's the same thing. Does that make sense? Yes, but it hasn't satisfied my... Okay. okay, Well, I'll keep going and at the end, if you're still not satisfied... and There's like holding the emotion. So, I'm just a, a difference between... About that with me, yeah. But, There's a difference between holding the emotion and suppressing the emotion. So it's not about passive-aggressive, pretending, oh, I'm not angry. And again, it's what I said in the beginning, like... We need to find the time and the place to actually work with this stuff. So I'll come back to this at the end and see see if we can uh, we can have more exploration of it uh, at the end. I just wanted to name one other um, antidote, something that I actually think of as a universal antidote for painful, unpleasant emotions, and that's the power of self compassion. So, so often when things are challenging, when things are recurring, when emotions keep coming back, when there's some kind of pattern that's locked in, there's usually something painful underneath it that's not being addressed. So we need to come into closer contact with whatever that difficulty is. But with this attitude of kind curiosity that allows us to come into contact with our own pain and distress. And for most people, this is incredibly challenging. You know, in a lot of my teaching, when I suggest to people, you know, we know most of us have some familiarity with metta, with kindness, and we most people agree it's a good thing but we're usually not so familiar with compassion and particularly self-compassion. So we tend to think that metta is supposed to be our default strategy to every terrible thing that happens to me, to every painful emotion. I'm just supposed to have metta. So maybe this comes back to Rena's comment of the passive-aggressive. Sometimes, though, metta is not the most appropriate response. Because if we haven't connected with our own pain and taken care of our own pain, trying to offer metta out there is not necessarily going to be very effective. So sometimes people say things to me like, I've been trying to offer kindness to my ex-partner and I've been in a custody battle with him for five years, but somehow the meta's just not working. And I'll say, oh, have you explored compassion for yourself and the usual response is one of either blankness or outright horror because we're so used to oh, being kind to everywhere everything out there but not taking care of what's in here so one of the um Practices that I offer for working with painful emotions is this self-compassion. And again, with touch and go, we might just put the hand on the heart and touch into it. And then perhaps offer some of the phrases of self-compassion. Some that I use are, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release And may I know peace. So just that willingness to be aware, to acknowledge, to care about one's own pain can be uh, very effective in helping it to release. And it's a training because, as I said, for most people, this is quite counterintuitive and it can take some practice. And it's not something that can be forced. So we're trying to make ourselves more compassionate. It's not so compassionate. (laughs) That's the paradox. Yeah. Because many people have a tendency to disconnect, to hate it. I shouldn't be feeling like this. If I was a good meditator, I wouldn't be feeling any pain. So it's an invitation. Can I care about this in the way that I might care for other people's pain? Can I care about my own pain? So again, it's not indulging in it or wallowing in it, but just acknowledging I'm aware of it. I care about it. Yeah. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. But you would also use the ABC on that one for self as well. The ABC, yeah. yeah. And, and touch and go and the name and the time frame. And all yeah. Yep. So these are all different strategies that you can uh, explore to help you stay balanced and to gently expand your capacity to be with these challenging emotions, these hindrances. And so uh, just as a reminder about why we're doing that, it's in the service of freeing the heart and mind. And as a A slogan that I read a few years ago that I found very useful in my own practice, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. So even these things that we think are problems, oh, I'd be a good meditator if I didn't have so much grief or I'd be able to meditate okay if I wasn't in this custody battle with my ex or all these things that we think are getting in the way, right there is where we need to bring the practice to it. So um, I've just got an example. Because I've been feeling pain in my upper chest, which I've never had before. It's just come up in this retreat, actually. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know what the negative emotion, what the hindrance is. But I should I just say, so I just talk about the physical pain, do I? I Yeah. For this ache. Yeah, if it's the physical pain, I mean... It might not be a hindrance, it might just be a physical pain in the body. But it often there's some reaction, Oh, what is this? Why is this happening? What's going to happen? How long is it going to go on for? Sometimes there's some anxiety or some resistance. Then that's a hindrance that we can pay attention to. I'm aware of this anxiety. I care about it. So it depends. You might work on just the physical pain level or if you're aware of some emotion reaction to it, you can explore that. Thank you. So, the good news is that the more that we can release these hindrances, the more space we can create in the heart and mind for the seven factors of awakening to come in. And I want to keep reinforcing that because as I said last night, the tendency we, most of us have is to fixate on the problems, the challenges, the difficulties, all the things, the perceived inadequacies of our practice. And to actually overlook those times when the hindrances might not be present. But as the practice matures, we really need to pay attention to the absence of the hindrances too. And to learn how to recognize those moments, even if they're fleeting, of ease, of peace, of freedom, of space. And a few years ago, I I read that the Tibetan word that's used for meditation literally means getting used to it. And I liked that because it works on a lot of different levels. Getting used to it. And one aspect that we're getting used to in this context is getting used to these unfamiliar uh, moments of ease, the potential freedom that all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. And this freedom happens on deeper and deeper levels, culminating in the complete liberation of heart and mind that's known as Nibbana or Nirvana. And it's possible that when we first hear words like enlightenment or liberation that they sound very remote or abstract or something that might happen one day in the very distant future. But in fact, if we really pay attention, we can start to notice these moments throughout the day when the heart and mind are at least temporarily free of these harmful energies. And on retreat, we can really tune into these and help them stick around for longer so that over time they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So I want to um, leave some time for questions at the end. Uh, I think I'll save the rest of this talk perhaps for tomorrow night. But I just wanted to share a quote by the Thai forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa in relation to this because um, being able to see the moments when the mind is free from the hindrances is actually what keeps us sane. So he says, temporary nirvana, awakening, nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements, in other words, the hindrances, were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane, or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of the defilements do not burn. Periodical nirvana keeps all of us alive and well and it is a nourishing condition normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality That is to say, we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements. Whenever it happens, a little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So if we know how to look, we might find that these moments of ease and peace and freedom are more common than we realize. Just as this afternoon when we were looking at pleasant or unpleasant, depending on where we put our attention, more became available. So in the same way, if we start to tune the mind in to these moments of peace, we might find that more of them are available than we otherwise may have imagined. So as I said, I think I'll leave it for there tonight and uh, continue the rest of this talk tomorrow so that if there are any more questions, we can follow up with them now. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.